Take your Bibles this morning and open them with me back to Luke chapter 4 this morning, if you would. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. We have just finished the temptation of Jesus last week, which we found out was really a preparation for His ministry, the rest of His life and His ministry. Now, uh, although some other time has passed that Luke does not record, John does, but Luke doesn't, now we continue in Luke's succession into a ministry of Christ and actually a ministry described by Christ. The work of Jesus will be described by Jesus Himself this morning in Luke 4, starting in verse 16. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story of a man who was born in England in the year 1725 who would eventually find himself involved in one of life's most heinous, unjust, and sorrowful acts. This man was raised by a captain of a merchant ship. His mother died when he was at the age of seven. And so he was raised by this father who spent much of his life at sea. So when this man came of age himself, he decided, decided to join the English Royal Navy. Only to find out that he did not like the English Royal Navy. And in his first uh, initial voyage to Africa, he would revolt on ship and request to be traded out of the Navy into the next available ship they came in contact with. For him, he did not care who it was, where it was, he wanted out of the Royal Navy. So a few months into that trip, he was traded out of the Royal Navy and traded onto a slave ship as a crewman. A few years, however, into this new adventure in his life, he would find himself no longer as a crewman, but would find himself a slave. And his captain now became his owner. And he was a cruel man. And his mistress was a cruel woman. This man would later write of his time in slavery in Africa. And he would say that he was dressed in rags. He had to beg for his food. He was often beaten. He lived in unspeakable conditions. And even other slaves were said to have pity on him. In fact, the owner's mistress hated him so much that she would make the other slaves on the property come together and mock him and beat him. But when she would leave, this man would uh, have the pity of the other slaves. He would also write of his time later in life and say that anytime a new person came onto his owner's property, he would often run into the wilderness for he was afraid of his appearance. He was in such bad conditions. Well, a few years of this kind of lifestyle were brought to an end because of his father, who was a notorious captain of a merchant ship and a merchant company in England. This man was eventually bought out of slavery from Africa and brought back to England and returned to the sailing industry. Eventually, though, despite his time as a slave himself, this man would become the captain of his own slave ship. And he would find himself for years shuttling slaves from Africa, men, women, and children, to England and to the Americas. 
he would write about his time as a slave ship captain. And he would say, I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others to do the same. He would also say that his time as a captain was a time of cruelty and greed as he would shuttle slaves to the auction blocks for a profit. However, on one of his voyages, he was found in the middle of a great storm. And in the middle of this great storm, he would fall to his knees, cry out to God for mercy. And there, he says, he met Jesus Christ and became a born-again believer. This man grew into the faith. He matured as he was able to mature. He eventually would leave the slave and the sailing industries and in later parts of his life find himself in the ministry serving God. He would also come to hate the slave trade, though he was once a part of it. And he would find himself by the end of his life fighting for the freedom of all slaves in England and around the world. And in 1772, this man penned the most popular hymn that's known in churches today. It's a hymn that encompasses for him what it was like to be found by God. And it's a hymn that encompasses what we read about of the ministry of Christ in Luke chapter 4. Many of you already know who this man is. He is John Newton, and he wrote Amazing Grace. And when you know John Newton's background, that he was once a slave himself, and then the captain of a slave ship, and you begin to realize the pains that he caused upon others, and you read the words of Amazing Grace, you're struck with a new, fresh look at what God does to the heart of sinners who turn to Him in faith. So I want to read to you the words that John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace with the background of his life now in your, in your mind. He wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Here's a man who penned that wonderful hymn that we sing today with joy because he knew that God's grace saves a wretch like me. And though I was blind, now I see. And one individual who was once shuttling slaves to the auction block now says, I long for Christ and my home with Him. That is amazing grace. And I share this brief account of John Newton's life this morning because it so vividly encompasses and captures what Christ is going to describe about His ministry this morning. We belong to a Savior who has a ministry of salvation, a ministry of redemption. And it goes far beyond just forgiveness of sins, doesn't it? 
It's an amazing grace that's poured into our hearts that not only saves, but even transforms. We don't have a God who just forgives us of our sins and then leaves us alone. We have a God who forgives us of our sins, works wonders in our hearts, and frees us from sin so that a man like John Newton can now say, I hate the slave trade and I love Christ. So, I hope that you will see this morning this amazing grace. And I hope that you'll see this morning that we have a God who has the desire in His own heart to work wonders in our hearts. God wants to work in your heart. God loves and finds joy and finds pleasure in taking men and women who commit unspeakable acts of sin and rebellion and offense against God and He loves to take them, wash them, cleanse them, make them new, make them whole, redeem them, and set them on a different path. Any of us who belong to God, any of us who have been born again, who are believers, know that truth, right? Some of us have family members, some of us are even in that place ourselves where we think there is no hope for my life. There's nothing going forward. What am I going to do? Let me tell you, we have a God who loves to take us out of the bad places we're in and set us on a path of righteousness towards Him. Set us towards Him in freedom. But we all have to understand first that all humanity is found ultimately where John Newton was found. Sinking deeper and deeper into sin. The Scripture makes it clear, doesn't it? All have sinned before God and therefore all are condemned before God. So not only do we want this grace and we want this ministry of redemption from Christ to affect our lives, we need it to save our lives. So we this morning will have the privilege of looking at the complete and total ministry of redemption of Christ. And I say complete and total because He who is faithful will bring it to completion and totality in your life. He'll work in us without giving up with incredible patience until we are brought to completion with Him in glory. That is the ministry of redemption. Let's look now in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. As we find, like I said in this passage, Christ explaining really His, his own purpose and ministry and mission in life. And he explains who's the recipients of such a ministry and we see a reaction to that kind of ministry. So we'll read the passage and back up and walk through it. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Luke writes, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? But he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We begin with verses 16 through 21 looking at the ministry of Christ explained by Christ. And we begin by asking the question, what exactly do we mean by redemption? What does the redeeming aspect of Christ's salvific work produce within us? What does it do? And I would define redemption this morning as the working of the old self into a new creation. It can carry other meanings, but I think for this purpose, this is the meaning it carries. It's the working of the old self into a new creation. It, it's the idea of deliverance that includes with it transformation and sanctification. Being made into the image of Christ. That's the ultimate goal of God's redemption in our hearts. Not just to forgive of sin, but to make us in the image of Christ. So that's what we find Jesus describing today. This ministry of Redemption. He quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which so accurately and so beautifully describes that inward working of redemption. Even the depth of that redemption brought about by Jesus. Now, the Jews of the time that would have been hearing this read to them already took this passage to be a messianic passage, already took it to be a prophecy pointing towards the coming Christ, but they assumed that it would be fulfilled in a physical and a worldly way. So here comes the Messiah. He's going to take over the Roman government. He's going to reign as king of the world and, and all the Israelites are going to be set free from him. Jesus is not taking this passage in a physical or worldly way. He's taking it in a spiritual way and he's applying it to the heart. That's important for us to understand and grasp. These things that he's describing in verse 18 and in verse 19 that he's quoting from Isaiah 61, these are the things that happen to a person when a person is born again in Christ. So, I also want to say before we go any further, this passage not only describes the work of Christ, but also the state of humanity. The very reason that Jesus needs to do a work of redemption among us. It not only describes God's infinite grace and his heart of love for humanity it describes 
the depth of despair that humanity is in because of sin. Sometimes we simply either do not know or we forget the serious effects of sin in our lives, right? It destroys us. It not only condemns us and it not only separates us from God, which is the ultimate issue and problem of sin, it also destroys our abundant life here in God's creation. It envelopes our hearts in corruption. It taints our view of life, of each other. It wrecks our lives. And before we know it, we go down a path of sin without realizing it. Look up years later and wonder how in the world did we get here. So let's look at this passage first and see what it says about humanity and then we will come back and see what it says about the work of Christ. You'll notice several words in this passage. All of them in verse 18 that describe the people who are receiving this work of Christ, the people He's performing this ministry to. The first word you'll notice is poor. Humanity, apart from Christ, is poor. You've heard it said before, we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing within us, nothing in our hearts that can do anything about our great debt before God. Sin puts us in a great debt before a holy, almighty, powerful God. And there is nothing we can do to reconcile that debt. We are poor apart from Christ. Our sin makes us poor. We're unable to secure, unable to earn, or unable to buy mercy. When you see this word poor, it's just communicating utter, utter inability to do anything about your state. You're poverty-stricken, spiritually speaking. You'll also notice the word captive. He's performing this ministry to those who are captives. Meaning that we who are in sin without salvation in Christ are held as prisoners to sin. Right. In fact, I would maintain that a person cannot even make a decision freely apart from Christ. They are held captive to the sin in their heart held captive to the sinful nature that they possess. They are shackled with heavy chains under their sin. They bear the burden of guilt. They bear the weight of shame. They bear the burden of condemnation without Christ. If you are an unbeliever or know an unbeliever, you are captive, a prisoner, a slave. The other word that's in this passage is blind. We who are without Christ are blind. We're unable to see spiritual truths. Unable to know anything of God. Unable to see God Himself. In fact, that's why we have so many World religions, isn't it? Mankind has tried to find God on their own only to arrive at a false conclusion. Apart from Christ, sinners are blind and cannot find God, cannot see God, cannot even see the path that leads to God. Their scales are over their eyes and they 
are lost and wandering through this life without hope. Lastly, you'll see the word that describes unbelievers is oppressed. They're oppressed people. Meaning they are harassed by the enemy, aren't they? They're unable to overcome his schemes. Unable to overcome his lies. Unable to overcome his deceptions. Unable, unable to overcome his accusations. They are beat down by his evil and condemning words. They are bruised and left bloodied by his fiery arrows that he flings into their lives. Unbelievers, apart from Christ, are oppressed. That, that's the plight of humanity without Jesus. That's, that's the reward of sin. That's the only thing we can get because of sin. That is what you get with a life lived apart from God, right? You're poor, you're captive, you're blind, and you're oppressed. You can't do anything about your situation because you're poor. And you're not only poor, but you're held as a prisoner of sin. And you're also blind. You can't see your way out. You can't figure out how to get out. And, by the way, you're oppressed. You're under the thumb of the enemy. Your life is hopeless. That's what the passage says about humanity without Christ. What does it say about the work of Christ that He performs towards humanity? Well, first, notice it says about Jesus that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him. We saw that at His baptism, right? Where the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained upon Him. We even saw it at His temptation, the beginning of His temptation and the end of His temptation as the Spirit leads Him to the wilderness to be tempted and leads Him out of the wilderness to begin His ministry. He is enabled and empowered by God. The Spirit of the Lord is with Him. He's also anointed and sent. God has anointed me, Jesus says, and He has sent me. That means He is God's steward. God's missionary. God's ambassador to us. He's God's Son sent for us. He's God's Lamb sent for us. You recall John the Baptist in John chapter 1 say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. The anointed Lamb of God come to be sacrificed for humanity's sin. So He's enabled and empowered and sent by God as God's missionary to carry God's purpose and mission to the world. What is that purpose? What is that mission? What is that redemption? This is where we begin to understand it. First, it is to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim the gospel, right? The very message that we're reading, the very fact that redemption is offered to any who will come to Him in faith. He is here to proclaim and make known that good news. The good news that you cannot... And do not need to earn your salvation, right? Let me stress that for a moment. We often land upon the fact that you cannot earn your salvation, which is right, true, and biblical. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor, earn God's love, earn God's grace or mercy or forgiveness. But the other side of that coin is there, there's nothing you need to do. Christ did it all. You do not need to earn your redemption. You need to turn to Christ in faith. He secured it Himself. 
This is good news to those who cannot pay their debt. Those who have this enormous debt before God who cannot come up with anything to pay it off only need to turn to Christ who's paid it for them. In fact, Colossians, let me flip over here and read you a passage. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. You, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We who are poor without Christ have our debt paid for by Christ. Come to Him in faith. This is the ministry of redemption of our Lord. Initially here, the forgiveness of sin through Jesus alone. Sola Christus. Christ alone. He's not only here to proclaim good news, He's also here to proclaim liberty to the captives. He sets slaves free. John Newton's life is an example of that. But spiritually speaking, all of us who have salvation from Jesus are set free, aren't we? We're no longer slaves to sin. No longer prisoners held captive by the power of sin or the power of temptation. Instead, we're set free by Jesus and made children of righteousness. Begin to see the depth here of Christ's redemption. (laughs) Not only are you forgiven of your sin, you're set free from your sin. Not only do you have forgiveness from God and you're washed and you're cleansed and you're purified, but now the power of sin has no sway over you anymore. Every, Every temptation, every sin that has set on your heart for so long can be overcome in Christ. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm a living example that Jesus can overcome any besetting sin in a person's life. We have freedom in Jesus. We don't have to be the dog that runs back to our vomit. We don't have to settle for the garbage anymore. We don't have to enslave ourselves with these heavy chains and these yokes of slavery we are found Free in Christ, He proclaims liberty to the captives, forgiven and freed. But it continues on, He proclaims recovering of sight to the blind. He gives us eyes to see. He guides us into the truth. In fact, that's what He's doing in this passage. You remember verse 16? Luke says, as was His custom, He's in the synagogue and He's teaching. He's guiding people into the truth of God. Engaging them intellectually, logically. Wanting them to know that what He says is true. He gives them eyes to see. Guides us into truth. He reveals to us who God is. You realize because of Christ redeeming our hearts, we can now know God. We can look into the face of Christ and see God. You can read about the desires, the characteristics, the very heart of Jesus and know the very heart of God. We've all, as Christians, been given eyes to behold our Maker. 
thanks to Jesus. This is His ministry of redemption. He leads us down that path of righteousness that ends in fellowship with God. Finally, Jesus sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Interestingly enough, this is the only phrase in the verse, in the passage, that is an action phrase other than proclaiming. Here it says, He will set at liberty those who are oppressed, meaning that He frees us from the power of the enemy. Frees us from the power of sin, frees us from the power of temptation so that we too don't have to listen to the devil in our lives, right? The guilty accusations that he heaps at us day in and day out that says you're not worthy of forgiveness. You've done too much. You're too far gone. We have no need to listen to that in Christ. We are set free from the oppressor. No longer under his thumb. I want to tell you, read to you a story from Zechariah. Chapter 3, minor prophet. There's a vision Zechariah has of a high priest named Joshua. Let me just read this passage to you. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove those filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by him. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under this vine and under his fig tree. In that passage, we see a vision of a man named Joshua, the high priest, who's standing before God, and he is clothed in filthy garments. He's covered and stained in sin. Everything about him is disgusting and engrossed in this disease and infection called sin. And by the way, Satan standing next to him, accusing him. Look how guilty he is, God. Look how shameful he is, God. He's too far gone for your forgiveness. But what does the Lord say? He says, I rebuke you, Satan, be gone. And I will take off his filthy garments and put on pure garments and restore him back into the ministry. That, church, is an example of Satan not having any sway or say or power over those who belong to God. Though he may stand and accuse, though he may stand and point the finger, and though he may be right that we are guilty of sin, God makes the final judgment on us. We are set at liberty 
from the oppressor. Well, the passage ends in verse 19. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And yes, it is the age, the time of the Lord's favor. For we are hearing good news and being set free from captivity and gaining sight and being set free from the oppressor. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. No longer is this a prophecy of hope. No longer is this a promise. Today, it is a fulfillment. And it's fulfilled in me. Well, real quickly here this morning, we ask ourselves, who are the recipients of this redemption? This redemption that forgives us, sets us free from sin, gives us eyes to see God, and frees us from the enemy. You see how far and deep and wide that redemption goes. So who are the recipients of this kind of ministry? Who does God want to receive this redemption? And it's the answer to that very question that enrages this Jewish audience. You've probably noticed that this is a peculiar passage why do these people like him and then get really mad at him and want to kill him what's the answer to the recipients of this ministry that enraged them and i want to move quite quickly through this part for time's sake this morning notice they like his words verse 22 because they think they're going these words are going to apply to them so they marvel at his Gracious words that are coming from his mouth. Oh, this is, this is good news for us. We may not be the, the bullied anymore. We may be set free now. But then you see they flip in an instant and they begin questioning. Wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's son? Remember, we're in Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Luke tells us that. So these people know Jesus personally. They know his background. They know his family. And they realize something's not clicking for me. I grew up with that man. My children grew up with that man. He was our town carpenter. He worked in my house. Isn't that Joseph's son? So how can a prophecy be fulfilled by him? How can he say that he's the Lord's anointed? He's not even a priest. He's not even a Levite. He's an old carpenter from this small town. He's been missing for 40 days, but he's one of us. How can he be the Lord's anointed? Well, Jesus anticipates this, understands this questioning, and continues teaching and answers them. He answers them with two modern-day Proverbs and two Old Testament stories. We do the same with Proverbs. We often say, the early bird gets the worm. We're trying to communicate a principle. Jesus is doing the same thing here with these people. And it is these things that provoke anger in these people and also stress the point of Jesus. He says and quotes the first parable or proverb. Doubtless you'll quote to me, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, why don't you do that here as as well? Essentially, they're saying or going to say to Jesus and all throughout the Gospels, we see this repeated over and over from the Jews. Authenticate yourself. Do some work or do some sign to prove that you really are the anointed of God because really, I don't believe you. This proverb and, and every time the Jews demand a sign from Christ and Christ denies those signs over and over again through the gospel, those are really expressions of unbelief. We really don't believe you're the anointed of God or that God's Spirit is upon you. So why don't you just go ahead and prove yourself. If you are a physician, then certainly you can heal yourself. If you're the anointed, certainly you can do something to authenticate yourself. 
you know, it, it's, this is the beginning of his ministry, but we find a similar phrase at the end of his life on the cross. If you are the Son of God, take yourself down from there and save yourself. Constantly, Jesus is being demanded, do something to prove yourself because we just don't believe you. People are like that today. God, you've got to do something to me because I, I don't know that you really exist. I don't know that you're real. You've got you to prove yourself to me. That's what they say. We heard you did a lot of cool things at Capernaum. Why don't you do some of those things here so we can see? But this physician isn't about healing himself and this Son of God isn't about saving himself. He's about healing and saving sinners. So he will not heed to their request. Instead, he shares another proverb with them. Verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Essentially, he's saying, you're going to reject me. Not only will you not believe in me, you're, you're going to reject me. And, and even so, by the end of this passage, before the day's even out, they reject him. You're going to turn your back on me. It's a picture of a group of people rejecting someone that's sent for their benefit. Why do prophets come in the first place? To teach us, guide us, correct us, to help us walk in the paths of God. That was the purpose of prophets. To know the will of God, to follow God. And these people are going to reject such people. Reject, reject such benefits and such help that God has sent to them. Over and over throughout Israel's history, they have. And that's the bigger picture Christ is communicating here. You have rejected all the prophets, and by the way, you're going to reject the ultimate prophet, me. You're going to turn your back. That's the crux of the issue here. And that's what Jesus is building towards. Then he shares two Old Testament stories. Both of them meant to show Israel's rejection and redemption's beneficiaries. And he tells two Old Testament stories that involve two major prophets that any ordinary Jew would have certainly known about because these are the two prophets in the Old Testament that are held with utmost respect and utmost honor. And Jesus is going to use them to share something with this group of people that they really do not want to hear. Both of these stories have three things in common that drive home Jesus' obvious point. And provoke the people to anger. First, the assumption that the Jews of Israel were the sole recipients of God's favor and salvation is denied in these two Old Testament stories. In verses 25 and 26, you're going to see Jesus talk about Elijah. And he says, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And by the way, he was sent to none of them. He'll say it again in verse 27 of Elisha. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. None of them were cleansed. Lot in Israel and none of them received favor. None of them received grace. None of them received help. Here are the helpless among you, the people whom you would think would get the most help, the most favor from God in your land. And oh, by the way, just because they're Israelites doesn't mean anything. They got no help in these times. The second thing that these two stories point out is that these Israelites were passed over for Gentiles. Not only did God not help 
Jews in Israel during the time of these two prophets. He actually passed over them to help Gentiles. Elijah is sent to a widow in the land of Sidon. Elisha is sent to Naaman in Syria. And further that, these are not only Gentile people, they're actually enemies of Israel who at the time of Elijah and Elisha were hostile to Israel. In fact, if you look, and we won't look there this morning, but if you look in 2 Kings chapter 5, you will read of Naaman and Elisha healing him. Naaman was the general of the Syrian army who had just raided Israel, kidnapped an Israelite girl at the time Elisha healed him. In fact, in that story, we learn that Naaman would not know of Elisha had the Israelite girl kidnapped by him told him of Elisha. And so God is, or Jesus is saying here, these aren't just Gentiles, they're pagan sinful Gentiles that the prophets passed over for. So not only did the Jews not get the favor, they were passed over for Gentiles. And thirdly, perhaps most enraging to this group, Jesus cites that these are not abnormal circumstances. These are the will of God. Because Elijah was sent to this widow. And Naaman was healed and taken care of. Both are subtle ways in Scripture to communicate divine will and divine authority. These Stories aren't just works of the prophets. They are sanctioned and sent by God to do the will of God. So Christ shares these Proverbs and shares these Old Testament stories to come to a culmination and communicate one thing. That this ministry of Jesus isn't exclusive to the Jews, but it is the will of God for all people everywhere who turn to Him in faith. Do you think that just because you're an Israelite, you're going to get the ministry of redemption? You're not. In fact, it's God's will that everyone, even Gentiles, pagan sinners would benefit from this redemption ministry of Christ. It's one thing to say that Jews aren't the sole receivers of God's total redemption just because they're Israelites. And it's another thing to another level to suggest that Gentiles are also part of this benefit. But to say that this is God's will that it be this way is outrageous to these people. Gentiles are God's enemies. They're idol worshippers. They're unclean, unworthy. In fact, some ancient Jewish writings say that Gentiles were created by God simply to be fuel for hell's fires. They had no compassion for them. And now here's Jesus saying, this, this ministry of redemption is going to extend to everywhere, everyone everywhere who will come in faith. Church, that's why we pray for unreached people groups every Sunday morning. Because we know this ministry and work of Christ can go to anyone, anywhere. It goes even further when we include and remember the two Proverbs that Jesus shares. Those Proverbs about rejecting Him, rejecting God's prophets. We finally see the big picture of what makes this group mad. Jesus is essentially saying, you're going to reject me, and so I'm going to take my ministry to the Gentiles. It's a foreshadowing of the time we're living in right now in a lot of ways. This passage isn't just Nazareth 
rejecting Jesus. It's Jesus rejecting Nazareth. Paul communicates that point in his ministry because the Jews turned their back on me and my message. I now went to the Gentiles, went to Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and Rome. In fact, Paul will write in Romans chapter 11, the Gentile or the Jews were made ignorant and unbelievers for the sake of Gentiles so that Gentiles could hear the gospel and believe and be saved. And that's, that's true of every, everybody. If you deny and reject Christ, eventually He's going to reject you. If you persist in that rejection. If you persist in that kind of denial. As you can imagine, and as we read, this enrages the people. And that's our final point. What's the reaction to this kind of a ministry? It's often rage, isn't it? What's the reaction to the work of Christ? It's, it's typically not pleasant from the world. Here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the captives free. I'm going to give people sight. I'm going to free them from the oppressor. And, and it's not just for Israelites. It's for anybody who comes in faith. Anybody who doesn't reject me. It, it's a ministry that extends to a slave trader like John Newton, to a pagan idol worshiper like Abraham, to a murderer, Christian murderer like Paul, to a mystic monk like Luther. It's going to extend to anybody today who will come to him in faith. Let me just add a note here. Let's be careful not to have this mentality that the gospel or Christ's work is only for those who are morally okay or who are country folk or Americans. This work extends to the world. These people are enraged by it. They heard these things and they, they flipped in an instant. Verse 28, with wrath. Verse 29, they want to go and kill him, push him off the cliff. We're not told how, verse 30, but he passes through their midst and he goes away. Understand, these are people who know Jesus personally. Again, he, he's helped them. He's remodeled their home. He's been in their homes. Nazareth is a small village of about 500 people at the time of Christ. He know, knew probably everyone personally. Now, they're so enraged they want to kill him. And I just want to point out that that's the reaction of the world today. When we preach the, preach the exclusive gospel that Christ is the only way, people want to persecute the church and try to push her off a cliff until she's dead. When we preach the teachings of Christ, that the world needs to observe what the Creator has installed as laws and commands, especially against cultural issues like homosexuality today, we're persecuted in crisis trying to be killed all over again. Anytime the darkness of the world is, ex is exposed by the light of God, the reaction is wrath and rage. Anytime you want to start pointing out to somebody that they're captive to sin, they're oppressed by Satan, they're blind and ignorant and can't find God, they're poor in spirit, they react this way. So what's the lesson for us? I would say two things in closing here. One, you need to rest and grow in this redemption. You need to rest in the work that Christ has done in our lives as believers. That He is proclaiming good news. He's setting us free. He's helping us to see and understand God. And you need to grow in that. You need to strive to see and know God better. You need to strive to be more and more free from the sin in your life. You need to strive to have more and more faith, to trust in Christ, to pay your debts. 
the second thing that I would say to you, Christian, this morning is that you need to proclaim this ministry and you need to proclaim it to the world despite the rejection that may come. I'm thankful the Lord didn't shy away from these people telling the truth. I'm thankful that the gospel is not exclusive to a certain people group in the world. I'm thankful that it extends to all who will come to Him in faith. We need to understand this ministry of redemption, share this ministry of redemption, expect rejection, and do it anyways. Unconcerned. Unhindered. Thirdly, I want to speak to you, unbeliever. Because you're here this morning. You need this redemption. You need this forgiveness. You need this liberty. You need this sight. You need to be changed and redeemed. You need your sins forgiven of. And you need to be made into the image of Christ. And remember, you're poor in spirit. You can't do that yourself. You have to come to Jesus for this. Nothing else. Christ alone. No ritual. No prayer. No amount of money in the offering plate. Nothing can save you except Jesus. And look here. Here's an eager Lord with a joyous, pleasurable ministry of redemption. Willing to extend it to any who come to Him. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't reject Him and turn your back on Him. Come to Him in faith. So I hope you begin this morning to understand and grasp the work of Christ that He performs in the world and in our own hearts, this ministry of deep and wide and rich redemption. You'll rest in it, grow in it, proclaim it despite rejection, and trust in Jesus alone. Father, we do thank You for Your Word this morning. Because in it we know of You, we learn of You, we see You, we behold You, we celebrate You. We even find our salvation, our need for salvation in Your Word. God, I pray this morning that Your Word reached out and touched hearts in a way that only it can do. I pray it was clear. I pray that it would marinate in our hearts. That we would begin to grasp the all-encompassing work that You do in our hearts. Trust in that work. Rest in that work. Grow in that work. We would proclaim that work. And Father, for those who are unbelievers here this morning, I pray they would trust in Your work for the first time this morning. Thank You for the opportunity to worship You. We love You. In Your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.